0: Topics discussed for educational purposes only. Now, welcome integrative dietitians Allie Miller and her co host Becky Yu.
1: Welcome to episode 50 of the Naturally Nourished Podcast Why Diets Fail. Woohoo! Episode 50. I'm uh, Allie here with Becky. Hey guys. And I am still delightfully overwhelmed with all things ketosis, literally. Just having returned from KetoCon, and next week we launch our virtual ketosis program. So yes, my brain is fueled on ketone bodies, and I am thinking all things (laughs) high-fat, low-carb. But today's topic really ties very organically into this and is on why diets fail.
2: So before we get into our topic, Allie, let's just do a little recap of what KetoCon exactly is, um, what you were doing while you were there, who you met, and what any of the major trends or aha moments were for you.
1: Sure. So it is a conference, the largest national conference and maybe largest conference in the world. I'm not sure though on that, but definitely largest national conference on ketosis and low-carb lifestyle. And it was put together by Brian Williamson of The Keto Evangelist and Jimmy Moore of Living La Vida Low Carb and his whole other array of different outlets. So there were a lot of movers and shakers in the wellness and low-carb, high-fat lifestyle world. Leanne Vogel was there, Maria Emrich, of course, like I said, Jimmy and Brian, uh, Dr. Will Cole, and also some really inspirational individuals that have used ketosis to heal a whole gamut of different conditions. So there was a woman that spoke about her bipolar disease and how she's medication free using ketosis, a man that survived traumatic brain concussive disorder and uh, people speaking on their successful outcomes with cancer and brain tumors and just the whole array from emotional to physiological, how a high fat, low carb diet can be very healing.
2: And then Ali, you were on a couple of panels as well, right?
1: Yes. So I was on, it was a three-day conference, and the first day I was on a panel for cancer and neurological health. And then the second day I had my lecture on, I called it Food as Medicine Approaches to Ketosis. So I really took things kind of the 2.0 level of once you've adapted to use fat as fuel, how can you pick up on other balancing functional medicine mechanisms in the body and then on the third day I was on a podcast panel so with other people that have podcasts and just kind of talking to the audience about what we do here so thank you all for listening and making that a reality
2: Awesome. And I think we'll have some amazing guests and you'll be having some guest spots on other podcasts just coming out of all yes. of that synergy.
1: So much fun synergy for sure. That's the word. And even meeting individuals and people, I, I loved meeting a lot of listeners and, and readers of the Naturally Nourished Cookbook and readers of our blog, Becky, and listeners of the show. So it was just really cool. A lot of hugs <laughs> and positive vibes and feedback that you know th- this buzz of our launch of our program next week is you know, moving in the right direction and I think we only have about like 20 spots left and I'm pretty confident it's going to fill by the end of the day tomorrow, so all, all good, exciting things on the horizon.
2: Awesome. Well, I didn't get to be there this year. I definitely will put it in my calendar very early for next year, um, but I was out of town last week for back-to-back weddings and while I was out of town, I was working on our upcoming eBooks as part of our virtual ketosis platform. So Eat Fat, Get Skinny is going to be rolling out before this podcast airs. There you
1: go. <laughs> um, and then
2: the Ketogenic Kickstart should be very shortly thereafter.
1: Yes. So both ebooks, as Becky mentioned, will be included for a bundle pricing with the virtual program. And that is $99 until 11.59 p.m. on September 5th. So make sure you go to AllieMillerRD.com backslash ketosis hyphen class to get details and snag one of the last couple spots in the program. And then after Tuesday night, it's going to go back up to the full price of $199. So $100 off for the next 48 hours.
2: I have to say 199 is probably still a deal compared to when for we sure. used to do the classes in yeah. our office.
1: Oh, and this is value packed. <laughs> so I think it's definitely, I think we have a value of 450 and that's not, super inflated. It's a pretty direct value. And then if you miss the, the timing of the class starting September 12th, you can get the eBooks on their own and they will be available in a bundle price as well, or $19.95 per eBook. So resources regardless of when you're listening. And then we will launch our next program again in January.
2: Perfect. So, so much exciting stuff on the horizon. Yes, and yes. with all of this, I want to get into today's topic of why diets fail. Um, So I know that you really think of yourself, Allie, as a diet list dietitian. So let's start there. Why are you anti-diet?
1: Yes. So I really believe in many ways that health can be at every size. And I look so much more at biochemical markers of disease, inflammatory markers. I look at the structure of the body, the symptoms of the systems, excuse me, of the body. And then beyond the systems, what symptoms are being expressed And then even further than that, I like to look, if I'm getting into body composition, I like to look more at the distribution of the composition, of course, over weight on the scale. So, you know, there's other biomarkers to health and wellness. And we definitely know that BMI is not the way to track disease risk because that doesn't distinguish a sumo wrestler from a boxer so you know the weight on the scale with your height not the way to go if anything composition would supersede but beyond that i like to heal people and then i like to use weight loss as a pleasant side effect so i don't like people driving focused on a diet And that's the reality. Diets don't work. I mean, the first three letters of the word diet are D-I-E. And you often feel like that during the process. I remember in my, I hate to say it, but it's true, my high school days and then definitely early college days, watching calories and doing different kind of tricks with myself. And the reality is any form of a diet, there's typically a timeline associated with it and it's human nature to look beyond the end point so you know when i finish this program or whatever this is i can't wait to have a pizza or i can't wait to rebound and have xyz or you know a cheat day or something like that so you know that restrictive over restriction typically leads to overcompensation for sure
2: And that timeline approach versus, you know, something that's more of a lifestyle and that you're doing for benefits beyond weight loss, I think is like where we're going as well.
1: Absolutely. You know, it's, and that's kind of the mantra of naturally nourished is redefine your relationship with food. And so that's my whole idea is how we can empower the reasoning behind the change and the connecting with our body to experience the change of that pleasant side effect of weight loss. So, you know, it definitely it's, it's this connectivity that that's key for sure.
2: And then beyond that, let's talk a little bit about why so much rigid structure doesn't work. So, even yes. though we're we're dietitians and, you know, the word diet is numbers. there too. Yes, yes. <laughs>
1: Yeah so you know i think that it's important to have some amount of structure and with everyone they're going to define this differently and that's the same way it goes with accountability but structure is not real life you know <laughs> you can't have the same amount of exchanges of carbohydrates fat and protein Every day of the week because that's just not real life on a stressed day you're probably gonna want to eat a little bit less to give your digestive system a rest and then on a relaxed day you might want to eat a little bit more you need to understand success- to get successful outcomes the why versus the what so why am I choosing certain foods in this method of eating I suppose and how those foods metabolize or respond in my body And then if I'm trying to determine what foods are in those categories, it's really using more of like an exchange list and understanding how foods are categorized than a direct A plus B equals C meal plan. So I really like to be using an exchange list with clients and then fluctuate ranges more so that the client can be intuitive with what their body needs on those given days.
2: Sure. So we know if we don't have bell peppers on a certain day, there's something else we could exchange it for in a similar amount. And it doesn't need to be this perfect shiny meal plan where we eat the same thing every day.
1: Totally. Totally. I think that's a great example. A lot of us, that's why we don't cook. You know, we get tripped up by the ingredients required. And if we don't understand structurally what can be exchanged for something else, then, you know, we can get into a big issue of, of kind of finding things that balance in a similar way for a replacement.
2: Sure. So let's talk about um, why dieting kind of creates this unhealthy relationship with food. And then beyond that, why you actually don't recommend having a cheat day?
1: Yeah. You know, I mean, I think it comes down to first accepting our love for food. That is human nature. Food creates connection with community. Food creates connection with the earth. I mean, our cycle of life. And that was a big healing process I had becoming an omnivore for sure. But, you know, food brings joy. There's nostalgia within food relationships. It's used in celebration and in sorrow. And, you know, I really believe that food shaming and quote-unquote bad foods or or compartmentalizing things in a do-not-eat creates a root of disordered eating and the foundation of a poor relationship with food. So although I don't accept food-like substances, that's kind of in its own world because that's not food. (laughs) So just to be said... Non-food, I would would categorize as quote-unquote bad, but I think all real foods do have a place.
2: And then, Allie, let's talk more about the mind-body connection here.
1: Yeah, so, you know, when we call things quote-unquote bad, like let's say chocolate cake I think is a good example – that creates this deviance within consumption and human nature also likes deviance you know you often will say like hey don't look at me I'm changing and the human reaction is what and you look you know (laughs) it's like whenever you're told not to do something that creates desire sometimes because of that restriction so in order to really make harmony with your body and satisfy cravings you want to connect with why you have that craving and then you want to honor your body with a mindful indulgence so this is going to be a conscious consumption of a food that may be higher in carbohydrates or calories or sugar as long as you're mindful and enjoying the process and then have a connection with your body of how you responded with that food so by this i mean if you feel shitty after having a slice of chocolate cake and you have abdominal distension or bloating or you get refractory anxiety or insomnia or joint pain then it's good to also connect with your body, make that relationship trend, and then potentially give up that ingredient because that's not honoring your body, that's harming your body, and create or find an indulgence that boasts, both tastes good, fills that void, and makes your body feel good in the process as well.
2: Sure. So maybe instead of chocolate cake that you know contains gluten and a whole bunch of sugar, we could do a chocolate avocado mousse. Um, we have Absolutely. a whole section in our cookbook that's, it's called mindful indulgences or indulgences, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Indulgences and, and they have their place. That's why I really was focused on putting that as a section of the naturally nourished cookbook for sure. And, you know, Metabolically and hormonally and different times of our life cycle, we're going to need more indulgences than others. So often, you know, if we're going through ovulation as women that are cycling or that premenstrual time, right, a couple days or during the early couple days of our cycle, that's when we want things like cacao, which has more magnesium, and we're going to have a little bit more need for serotonin support. And so these are times that it's okay to honor that craving, but find something that nourishes and provides nutritional density and therapeutic compounds versus harmful or deleterious that's the goal
2: so really we'd be looking kind of at you know the whole picture of what's going on stress wise what's going on in the gut or state of disease we'd be looking at our weight loss and metabolic goals and that's when we determine whether um, an indulgence with a natural sweetener might be allowed or not
1: Yes, and you know, a different phase of life, a different goal with weight loss, right? I mean, that's a total thing to take into account as well. Are you looking at maintaining your weight or actively losing weight? And then absolutely stress levels, even the temperature outside is going to play a different role in what we crave. You know, we might want more raw, crunchy, salty versus warm, nourishing, tonifying, grounded foods. And we want to be able to satisfy that need. And that's what makes this a sustainable transition of redefining our relationship with food versus a crash diet. You know, you can't out muscle the brain. You need to make peace with what it craves and find something that works within your current parameters versus have that dangling carrot of, when I finish this program, I get that. You know, whatever that is that you're salivating on, create that in your current approach and make it work harmoniously.
2: Sure, and that's what really makes it a sustainable approach versus something that you're going to, you know, yo-yo with for the rest of your life.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
2: So getting into the meat of today's discussion, um, let's talk about three reasons why listeners might not be having success with weight loss. So starting with number one, and I think this will be a really big hit to many of our listeners. Let's talk about calories.
1: Yes, so it is not about the calories and, take this further, it is not always about an energy deficit equation. (laughs) So, you know, you may have heard us going into macronutrients and, and that's really the importance of eating ample protein and good fats and, you know, the importance of restricting carbs, of course, but it's not this one plus two equals three type of equation that you may have been told by other people.
2: <laughs> so we focused, yes, on ample protein, good fats, and how they function differently in the body. Um, so starting there, Allie, how does the body actually lose weight?
1: Okay, so in order to lose weight, it has to be catabolic. It has to be in a mode of breakdown. So catabolic is breakdown. Anabolic is building. And you can build muscle during weight loss. And that's some really cool kind of advanced approaches. So I guess that could be a little misleading to some listeners. But basically, we do have to be at a deficit to lose weight, okay? And so a pound of fat is about 3,500 calories, okay? And so generally speaking, we used to say, If we can figure out your basal metabolic rate, which is the amount of calories that your body burns at rest. So that's looking at your vital organs and your lean body mass combined. That's what's gonna determine how many calories you burn and then there's your activity factor on top of that. So for most women, their basal metabolic rate is actually somewhere around 1000, maybe 1100 if they're lucky, maybe 1300 or so if they have a lot of musculature. And then on top of that, their activity factor Could be whether they're doing a yoga class or walking or swimming laps, you know, depending on what they're doing, that output or burn would be added on top of that basal metabolic rate, and that would be the total metabolic rate. So the excessive burn plus the basal function of the body. And in order to lose weight, what we would do is take a deficit of 500 to 1,000 calories a day to see either one to two pounds because, again, seven days a week, 500 calories a day, that's your 3,500 calories of burning one pound of fat.
2: So let's talk about how in our clinic, alley we determine BMR and how this is a little bit different than um, some other conventional approaches.
1: Yes, so basal metabolic rate should be determined if you have access to like a BIA scan, a bioelectrical impedance analysis, or a BOD pod would even be better. Um, And these are going to look at our body weight of muscle or dry lean mass and then also taking into account those vital organ tissue. And that's going to really give us what's burned. So based on the composition of the individual, someone that weighs 130 pounds on the scale, the individual that has more muscle mass is going to have a higher basal metabolic rate than the individual that has more fat mass. And that with weight loss is really what plays the turnkey solution of sustainable outcomes. So if we're talking about, like, let's say, Weight Watchers or other programs that have just clear-cut points, if you will, or calorie restriction. What they're looking at doing is putting you at that 500 to 1,000 calorie deficit, either usually like a 1,200 calorie meal plan or an 800 calorie meal plan. And the individual will see weight loss. But the reality is, this will only go on for a little. So, the first week, second week, third week, maybe even fourth week if they're lucky, that person's gonna be losing that pound to two pounds uh, per week or so. But eventually, the body is smart (laughs) and the body has survival mechanisms and the body is going to lose from muscle, which is going to bring down that metabolic rate and also lose from water, which is neutral. And this is going to reduce that basal metabolic rate as a survival mechanism and plateau our weight loss and then drive, regain or increased body fat storage.
2: Got it. And then it kind of becomes this vicious cycle where your BMR is lower every single time you restart that diet.
1: Right. And, you know, so then what you were successfully seeing results at, now you're starting to gain weight at, and then you get further frustrated and you go into full on screw it mode. (laughs) And then you binge out on those foods that you were craving that you were restricting yourself from when you were dieting, you know, so it gives this huge boomerang effect that can rebound with weight gain and undesired body composition shift.
2: Sure. So let's bring it back then, Allie, to the role of macros and and how that plays a role with sustainable weight loss.
1: Yeah. So, you know, macros definitely have a role within this. And this is a really big piece of the puzzle. So, you know, our general optimal eating, if you've checked out our, our episode called Optimal Eating on the Podcast or you've taken my virtual optimal eating course, you know that we emphasize on feeding the muscle to maintain that basal metabolic rate and then reducing carbohydrates. Because the carbohydrates are what's going to drive, with a spike of blood sugar, increased body fat storage. So carbohydrates break down to glucose in the body. Glucose signals the release of insulin. And insulin drives body fat storage. So if you think of like a diet as adjusting our bank account, if you will the body is going to know that you've budgeted and the body is just going to slow down its burn, if that makes sense. So the body adjusts its lifestyle spending as your budget would. And and so this is the importance of having balanced macros. But even further, if you're ding-donging insulin response, even going low glycemic, um, but not using full-on fat as fuel then that body may go into that preservation starvation mode and you may get hindrance with your metabolism. So going higher fat has actually shown can increase metabolic function in the body and have beneficial influence on satiety, so satisfaction, less calorie consumption. And then if we go super high fat, low carb like ketosis, we actually reduce that insulin response and the body gets to go into the fat as fuel rather than living on a low budget. So the body all of a sudden says, hey man, there's this extra savings account that I can spend and I don't have to budget my burns. So the metabolic rate does not lower with the ketogenic diet because the body can use fat as fuel. So every pound of fat you have on your body is an extra 3,500 calories that you don't have to consume, but your body can burn in abundance.
2: Got it. So let's talk, Allie, about the frequency factor here and how that plays a role.
1: Yeah, so frequency can be messing up your weight loss. So beyond total carbs, frequency can be messing up your weight loss because you're constantly dinging that insulin response. And so this is where we're starting to see a lot of benefits with fasting or kind of breaking up the timestamps of consumption. So the more frequently you eat, you know, we've probably been told that by many people, the more frequently we eat, the more we're dinging that insulin, which is telling the body store excess fuel as fat and we're being fed so we can use this food. And if we get less food, we should just restrict our use of fuel.
2: So being told we should eat every three to four hours. And, you know, I even say that to clients sometimes might not be the best approach for everyone.
1: Right. I, I mean, it, it's my it's my default is to tell people to eat frequently and, and also to break the fast. You know, that's what breakfast is, breaking the fast within the first hour of rise. and And this still stands true when we're using glucose as fuel. So if we're using glucose or blood sugar as fuel, which is almost everyone listening, unless they are doing ketosis as their approach, uh, when we're using glucose as fuel, we use glycogen in the liver and muscle and go through a process called gluconeogenesis, or basically the liver can make sugar and dump sugar into the bloodstream if we're not eating. So you know, for that sense, if we're using glucose as fuel, eating every three to four hours can prevent the liver from having to work and dump sugar into the bloodstream. But if we're able to starve the body of sugar and get into those that deep freezer of body fat, then we don't have to eat frequently. The body is efficient at using fat as fuel and actually eating frequently can hinder our weight loss successful results.
2: Got it. So being able to go much longer stretches if we're keto adapted and burning fat for fuel versus still, you know, if we're doing optimal eating, kind of 90 grams of carbs, we'd still want that frequency factor as part of our our plan.
1: Absolutely. And, and listening to your body is important as well. You know, we definitely don't want to override the signals of the body and our innate hunger response from what we're looking at mechanically from a diet, and that's another reason why diets don't work. You know, you have to listen to your body and the connections of what you need.
2: So let's delve a little bit deeper into this concept of fasting or intentionally skipping meals. So I'll list restriction as the first reason why we're not losing weight. Second reason would be excessive carbohydrate consumption, And then I think the third reason is really this frequency factor or the frequency is too often.
1: Yes. So, you know, if we're looking at this idea of fasting or intentionally skipping meals, it's, and what I was trying to get into is the idea that it can, it can dig deeper into your body's reserves as fuel. So in order to really successfully get outcomes with less frequency, it is important for us to be at a very low carbohydrate diet, so generally less than 60 grams of carbs. And to actually go into ketosis, that usually means less than 30 grams of carbs for most individuals. And when we're able to use body fat as fuel, that budget kind of concept that I referenced is irrelevant. So if you think of a refrigerator, Dr. Dr. Fong uses a really great uh, example of this, of this refrigerator, and I mentioned the deep freezer, right? So if you think of normal 1800 calorie burn and consumption, non-losing weight, as like three rows of your refrigerator full, and those get consumed every day, they get replaced, that's weight maintenance, okay? If you look at a diet of removing one row of food, so maybe that's a 1,200 calorie restriction, you're consuming the 1,200 calories, maybe you're burning at 1,800 calories because you're exercising and such, and yet your body is going to, as I mentioned, adapt to only two rows of food, and that's where that metabolic response reduces. Beyond even the loss of muscle, there is some hormonal influences that shift for survival, to reduce your metabolism with calorie restriction. So that's where kind of you're trucking along, still burning at three shelves worth, but only eating two, seeing the weight loss, and then all of a sudden the body slows down to only burning the amount of calories of what you're consuming, those two shelves, and that's where you get that plateau, right? The idea with the fasting and teaching the body to use fat as fuel is going a period of time where the body has to burn through its glycogen or its reserved blood sugar in the liver and muscle and then it has to go into your body's fat storage as fuel. So Dr. Fung calls this, Dr. Fung calls this the deep freezer of the body. I love that analogy. So if you think of opening up that deep freezer, now every pound of fat you have is 3,500 calories that you're adding back onto to that refrigerator to be used as fuel. So actually going without food for typically one-day fast is not successful. But if you can go and do more of like a sixteen-eight or spread your distribution of intake or uh, see space of time to allow your body to get into the fat and use that metabolically, that's when then it doesn't recognize that restriction and it's able to tap into your reserves as your fuel source.
2: So if we had, let's say, 100 pounds of fat to lose as an example – you could essentially fast for 100 days and survive?
1: (laughs) Essentially, this is true. Yeah, this is what a lot of the books on fasting are saying. I don't recommend that clinically speaking. And you'd have to have a really badass electrolyte balance, you know, going for you and definitely be drinking water and uh, definitely be on an array of micronutrients. And that's where I would say, you know, going no longer – in in my opinion, uh, and I have just not seen up to date. I'm not an expert on fasting, but you know I really recommend more using fasting as a tool in your day to day function. But yes, in theory, that's true. And so you know your body, you know when you're practicing fasting in the morning, you can do this by having a fat bomb, or if you are fully keto adapted, you might just have black coffee and allow your body to go into its fat reserves. And you may envision yourself eating, you know steak, eggs potatoes, you name it, and that's just from your own body fat. Especially an individual that has more than 30 pounds of weight loss to lose, they definitely have reserves where their body is actually able to effectively use their body store as fuel. And that goes so much against what we've heard for so long with dieting, right? Don't over-restrict. You're going to you know, slow down your metabolism. The reality is if you over-restrict while you're using carbs in your diet, so a fat-restricted, calorie-restricted diet is not going to be successful because the insulin is constantly going off and telling the body that it can't get into the fat as fuel. If you starve your body of sugar, then you starve your body of insulin, then the body can use fat as fuel, and having infrequency of eating is going to be the best tool to get best weight loss results.
2: Okay, that makes a lot of sense. And then instead of 100 days without food, the more sustainable approach would be something like, three days of intermittent fasting with a 16-hour window of no food, right?
1: Right. And I mean, as people advance, and again, based on the amount of weight they have to lose, I know Dr. Fung does extensive fasting, like five, seven days, you know, in his clinic, but that's metabolically monitored. And that's something that, yeah, could be a tool as opposed to bariatric surgery when we're talking about significant weight loss. But generally speaking, for most of our listeners that are looking at just wellness, We're talking about more of, yes, removing food from the diet for a 16-hour window. Maybe a 20-hour window would be pretty aggressive and only eating for a four-hour window. Uh, And that's just really going to depend on the individual and where they're at metabolically. But definitely teaching the body to be able to use your fat stores as fuel is a turnkey solution for sustainable weight loss success.
2: Okay, so let's just... Recap on this. Is this possible then, without ketosis, to get into this state of intermittent fasting?
1: So you can intermittent fast without ketosis. Yes, absolutely. But your and and you will get some some benefits. So the benefits you'll get of intermittent fasting, not in ketosis, is resting your digestive tract, right? So that can be helpful as far as allowing the body to go into this rest and digest mode and not be in this active metabolic breakdown it's actually stressful on the body to digest food (laughs) so it's wild to think about but you can get the benefits there so especially if someone's doing like a bacteria cleanse they might practice intermittent fasting to accelerate their results or we also can see some benefits of intermittent fasting as far as regulating leptin the hormone that creates satiety so that can help to rebound with intermittent fasting but you can't get into that deep freezer effect. You know, you can't get into using fat as fuel unless you're in ketosis. So the body metabolically is still going to be reduced in the amount of calories it burns if you're doing intermittent fasting, non-ketosis. Does that make sense? Is that yes, kind of clear? So you have to be starving the body of glucose as fuel or blood sugar as fuel, be using fat as fuel to keep your met- metabolism elevated during the fasting period. Um, But there can be some benefits to just fasting, period.
2: Got it. Okay. So let's, um, let's just talk about, since we're on the topic of ketosis, some of the other benefits.
1: Yes. So we can definitely see improved HGH, so our human growth hormone, which plays a big role in increase of muscle, and in, and then in turn, of course, increase of metabolism, also rebounding our hormone building blocks, so helping with testosterone rebound in the body, or balancing out sexual hormones in the body. We can see definitely a reduction in dysbiosis, so whether we're talking about yeast or pathogens, different forms of bad bacteria overgrowing in the body, this can be very compliant. The ketogenic diet is compliant with the, the specific carbohydrate diet. So we're already following that protocol for Crohn's ulcerative colitis and going beyond that less than 60 grams of carbs for a cleanse. So definitely therapeutic for the GI tract, especially for a, a focused period of time. We can see improved LDL uh, cholesterol levels and distribution, So more of the large buoyant LDL, less of the small dense within that we can see just reduced metabolic disease so reduction of triglycerides increase of hdl that good cholesterol value we can see absolutely a reduction of blood sugar levels and insulin levels which then means reduced inflammation and reduced belly fat Uh, so really cool things and then beyond the cardiometabolic and body composition changes we can see reduction in inflammation with markers like our c-reactive protein and even autoimmune disease markers, because generally speaking, insulin reactivity in the body drives inflammatory cascades. And that's, as we know, the root cause of many different forms of chronic illness.
2: And then Allie, let's talk about um, leptin and ghrelin. So those kind of hunger satiety hormones as well, and how ketosis influences them.
1: Yeah. So, you know, beyond the ketogenic diet being therapeutic as far as disease state, it also plays a huge role with regulation of appetite and reduction of cravings. In fact, you know, it may seem restrictive to some listeners, but I use it very successful with many of my clients that do uh, nocturnal eating cycles or have addictive eating tendencies or binge eating because we can get very healthy neurohormone response when we go into a ketogenic state. Knowing that the brain is 70 plus percent fat um, in its makeup, a high fat diet tends to work really well with our neurological response. And we see a big improvement with the two primary hormones of hunger, so ghrelin, Ghrelin is the one I think of as the gremlin of the appetite. So it's the one that drives hunger. Ghrelin does peak with stimulation of imagery of food, meal time. You know, so it's lunchtime in your office. Ghrelin is going to go up because it's that Pavlov's dog effect of okay, this is time to eat. Um, but we have seen in research, metabolically speaking, that ghrelin does tend to after it cascades, go back down about 30 to 60 minutes after it peaks. So sometimes just waiting that out if we aren't truly hungry is a possibility. And leptin, we know leptin is the satiety hormone, and this tends to be improved with a high-fat diet, especially a ketogenic diet. So this actually not only influences less ghrelin release, but it actually helps to provide satiation and create this kind of steady, grounded mentality, which is really freeing from food addiction. So you get this food freedom um, within that, which really helps metabolically, but also emotionally and craving.
2: Okay, and then let's talk beyond benefits of keto, um, other benefits of fasting other than the weight loss piece. So what about the concept of autophagy?
1: Yes. So, you know, this is where we're speaking like, uh, is fasting helpful keto or non-keto? And the reality is yes. I mean, there's many benefits to fasting. When we're talking about um, autophagy, gosh, autophagy, there we go, um, which literally means the cells eating themselves. So it's an intracellular degradation system that basically is like the recycling system of our body. So it delivers the healthy cytoplasmic compounds to the lysosome and the body upregulates in this autophage response, this kind of macrophage ability to eat itself, um, eats away at the dysfunctional or old compounds and regenerates new building blocks. And so this cell recycling is definitely something we see successful with oncology, uh, definitely cancer care, especially post-treatment of chemotherapy or radiation. It allows the uh, recognition of cancerous growth, and it helps the immune system in its reset. With that being said though, this fasting is still seen in those types of influences when the body is starved of sugar. So typically this means a fast for more than 24 hours, You know, when we're talking about clinics using this in post-cancer treatment care. So we're still starving the body of sugar, and likely that person still is ketogenic, if that makes sense, even though they're not following a ketosis diet.
2: Sure, because they've been fasted for 24 hours plus. Right, so
1: that's still starving the body of sugar. So, you know, they're still using fat as fuel. But definitely we see calorie restriction during the fasting period driving that cellular recycling system. And that's something that you wouldn't get with just following keto if you're not doing the fasting part, right? So it's kind of this, you know, not necessarily mutually inclusive, exclusive thing. It's all of the pieces lining up appropriately to work in your favor.
2: Got it. And then what about, we talked a little bit about digestion, but just let's reemphasize that for listeners, um, how fasting can improve our digestion.
1: Yes. Yeah, so I think this is something that's not recognized or talked about enough. And, you know, when we get bloating and distension, it's definitely helpful to take digestive enzymes, of course, prior to meals. But when we get bloating and distension, it's usually often because the body is having some form of bacterial response and that bacteria is eating what we just ate and releasing carbon dioxide, methane gases, and that's creating that, that bloat or that distension, right? And so feeding our bacteria is not a good thing when we're looking at resetting our gut microbiome. So that's one thing to consider. Fasting can actually weaken and starve off that bad bacteria overgrowth, especially if we're doing this in conjunction with a cleanse. is so something to consider. And then also, the body actually when the GI tract is rested the body is more efficient at other processes like thermogenesis or caloric burn the body is metabolically more active and so this is important to allow the body to rest from that digestion mode because excessive consumption of food actually generates more free radicals and that can you know not allow us the benefits of the digestive and anti-aging influence of of that resting and fasting mode so both starving off the bacteria and then just allowing the system to focus on other processes beyond digestion are really where we'd connect the dots there.
2: Sure. And then beyond that, let's talk about the cognitive influence and um, the BDNF output.
1: Yeah. So on a cellular level, we get that autophagy and that reset. And then, you know, beyond cellular reset and cleansing effect, we see influence in the production of a protein called brain derived neurotropic factor, so BDNF. And we have seen in research that fasting bumps up the BDNF, which activates our brain stem cells to convert new neurons, and this triggers new chemicals and promotes neuroplasticity and improved neurological health. So this protein is the one that protects our brain cells from changes that we've seen in research with Alzheimer's and Parkinson's disease. So definitely giving, again, that rest from constant digestion and allowing the cellular reset, but also allowing that fasting period of time for this neuroplasticity and that BDNF to peak is going to help with cognition and neurological conditions.
2: Okay. And then I think fasting, alley is kind of shamed in a way, if you will, um, just because of concerns with disordered eating. People are like, oh, you're not eating. I don't understand. It's mealtime. Why are you skipping a meal? Yeah.
1: Yeah, totally.
2: Uh, but, you know, beyond weight loss, I think some of the other influences that we discuss would be more of a reason to fast there's so many more benefits beyond just the weight loss
1: right so i mean you can still practice the benefits of fasting and actually maintain your weight right so you know you can eat higher amounts of fat during, during your window of eating to keep your calories up so that you're not losing weight. And that's especially important when we're talking about like post-cancer care. Their systems have taken such a beating and a lot of them experience cachexia or muscle wasting, which is another benefit of going ketogenic because they're muscle sparing. But beyond that, you know, we can really see with fasting that that allows for this reset. And we want to support their body amply calorically. So it's not necessarily, it can be used for weight loss success, as I mentioned, absolutely. But it doesn't have to mean weight loss and it doesn't have to mean disordered eating. Um, And I think that is a shame. You know, I, I think for so long when I see clients and I'm in a really busy state of the day. I will do bone broth sometimes. That's all I have during the day. And I always used to say, oh, I eat like bookends. You know, I eat a really nourishing breakfast and then I may skip lunch and then I have a a really nourishing evening meal. And I think I used to kind of be embarrassed by this, like, oh my gosh, my brand is nourishing your body, but I'm maybe not taking in enough or I'd have a smoothie at lunch because I felt like at least that was a good way to take in nourishment when my body didn't want to be digestively stressed uh, because I'm I'm constantly talking and I'm moving at, you know, many miles (laughs) a minute. But I, you know, the more I read about up on fasting and the more I read about this influence, I've been slower with my body of doing Maybe just a fat bomb or doing a matcha keto tea during the middle of the day. Maybe I'll add a little bit of collagen if I feel like my muscles need the support. Um, but it's really been working very nicely for myself. And it's something that organically I was kind of drawn to behavior-wise, but felt like I shouldn't do because of that, that kind of demonization in our culture and thinking back to kind of what's been ingrained with me with that, that old thing that we talked about, the frequency, the every three to four hours needing fuel. And that's just not true
2: sure i mean even if we think about animals when animals are sick or under stressed they're not eating
1: right and i think that's a great way to look back on the decisions we make in the food industry and in our nutrition industry we're just learning and we can never outsmart nature and nature knows you know that's the immune system when the immune system is distressed or injured we need to reset cellularly. So this is going to increase our body's ability to fight a virus and an animal will go three days without food. They just kind of go off into their bush and just hunker down and they're allowing that cellular reset and their immune system to upregulate. So I definitely want to hopefully today make peace with that separation from fasting having this guilt shame and you know famine mentality in americans and i think that maybe i mean maybe this is great depression derived i don't know but i think that that unfortunately drives a lot of obesity of these timestamps of it's meal time what's your breakfast what's your lunch what's your dinner versus listening to the body
2: sure and i really think we need a whole other episode on fasting there's just so much here Um, but let's real quick before we wrap up talk about what intermittent fasting um how it differs i guess from a fast per se and what a typical layout in terms of the hours and maybe even what the food would look like
1: sure so fasting you know, the term fasting could be any period of time without food. And, you know, in the medical field, we've been using fasting as far as like when we take fasting blood (laughs) to look at lipids. Uh, We've been using that to look at the chemistry of the body. But often, again, that American mentality that we need this structured breakfast, lunch, and dinner hasn't allowed much to be seen on a positive light. Uh, But fasting for spiritual or religious reasons has been done forever um i i I don't know an accurate date but i just know (laughs) that it's been practiced forever and so this would be typically in most religions like a 12 to 36 hour period of time so for some uh, religions they actually go even upwards of 72 hours or three days with just doing water and for some uh different religions they even do no water during 12 hour windows or such So, you know, the pros and cons of this, if it's just a 12-hour fast and you're using a lot of carbohydrates in your diet leading up to that, often a lot of fasts are broken with foods like dates, which wouldn't be my favorite, right, because you're getting a really high blood sugar spike. Um, And that's just kind of some Middle Eastern cultures and what have you. But We can get blood sugar irregularities with fasting, especially in the first 12 hours of a fast. If someone goes beyond that, as we discussed, even if they were eating carbohydrates, they're probably going to strain their body of the glycogen within that 24-hour period, and then they will be making ketones, so their blood sugar irregularities should stabilize, but it could cause blood sugar irregularities, you know, if you're going an extended period of time, multiple days and your body is not adapted to know how to use fat as fuel. So that's definitely a con. I think we've named an enough pros, so I won't go into that. And then, you know, when we're talking about a intermittent fast, this is typically cycling in the body. So you can do an intermittent fast. The most popular, I think, is a sixteen-eight, uh, 8 where you'd go from like 8 p.m. until noon the following day. So that would be 16 hours, you know, 8 p.m. to 8 a.m. is 12, and then add 4 onto that, 8 p.m. till noon the following day without food. And then you would have a uh, lunch, And then maybe like a protein shake and then a dinner. That's how we actually start in our ketosis program to just kind of give people a taste for the rhythm of what fasting feels like. And in that program, we do use a fat bomb in that morning period of time. So they'll do like a keto coffee or tea where they'll add grass-fed butter and coconut oil, pure fat to a non-caloric liquid so that they're better able to get into the fat fuel as the fat stores as fuel, excuse me, and get fat into their body to help with satiety and help with hunger so a sixteen-eight could be done with a fat bomb or without but basically that's 16 hours without food eight with you could take that a step further and go to an eight six eighteen six excuse me where you do 18 hours without food six hours with so that would just be a tighter window where you would maybe only eat from noon until 6 p.m and then start your fast again And then you can even intermittent fast for 24-hour cycles. So some people that are doing keto will do Sundays as their full day of intermittent fasting. And then, you know, they eat regularly for an eight-hour window the rest of the week. So it's really kind of different strokes, different folks. Depends on what you're working with, with your body composition, what your body's doing as far as its production of ketones, if you're even in ketosis and you know all those things are taken into consideration of what type of fasting we would use.
2: Sure. And I think part of it is just figuring out what works for you and having guidance of a practitioner or a program to help you structure that a little bit.
1: And listen to your body over the rigidity, right? So going back to that first reason why diets don't work, if you're starving on a fast, don't do it. You know, the idea is not to like white knuckle it. The idea is to allow yourself the cellular reset and actually to get into the diet state where you have that food freedom again where maybe you truly innately don't have hunger response and it feels very natural to do this. So I, I generally, even when I'm doing my ketosis program, I generally have people wait until week two to jump into the intermittent fasting, even those 16-8s, just because I want their body to find their rhythm and not experience this restriction right off the bat.
2: Sure. if That makes sense. All right. So I think we've covered a lot today. Um, and I just want to wrap things up and talk about the three reasons just to summarize why diets don't work. So we talked first about this diet mentality versus having a cheat day and that real over restriction. We also talked about imbalanced macros or too many carbs and too much of that insulin signaling. And then we talked also about excessive frequency and this kind of fear of going more than a few hours without food.
1: And that opened Pandora's box into a fasting conversation, which we will do another episode on. But yes, I think that these three are big barriers to weight loss. And I think The issue with all of these three reasons is that they may be recommended to you to lose weight, right? (laughs) So definitely things to be mindful of as you jump into weight loss and um, not a diet with us at Naturally Nourished, but a lifestyle change that helps you find peace with your body, honors your body, and allows yourself to nourish your body while still making improvements and dynamic changes in your body's composition.
2: Awesome. So, more details about our virtual ketosis program. Um, again, you can find that at alliemillerrd.com backslash ketosis hyphen class. And that's where you would be able to purchase that virtual class um, for the $99 deal up until, would we say Tuesday, 1159 p.m.? Yes. And then, <laughs> yep. Um, and then also included would be both eBooks in that bundle beyond that timestamp. We're looking at 199, which is still a really, really good value. And just for listeners um, to reemphasize. So this includes, it's a 12 week program, but includes six live webinars, our supportive handouts and worksheets, our customizable cup, Customizable, yes. ket- ketosis. <laughs> Say that uh,
1: customizable ketosis. three times.
2: Customizable ketosis. Customizable ketosis protocol. Um, access to our private Facebook group where Allie and I will both be interacting with all of our participants, as well as the ebook. So the Eat Fat Get Skinny with all fifty of our recipes, and then the Ketogenic Kickstart, as where our protocol lives.
1: And I was asked by a couple people at KetoCon, uh, because our cookbook, Naturally Nourished, does have ketosis friendly in the back as guidance. You know, if you already have that cookbook and you want to kind of get a taste of things, All of the recipes, I believe, except we use the carnitas as a base in our carnitas bowl. But all of the recipes in Eat, Fat, Get Skinny are unique. (laughs) So it's 50 new ketosis recipes. So super excited. Beautiful photos by Becky. And I think that you all will have a hard time finding restriction when you're following this type of a diet.
2: There's some really good stuff in there.
1: Awesome. Well, thanks so much for listening. And thank you guys for bringing us to our 50th episode of the Naturally Nourished podcast. Please tune in next time. And we will be happy to continue to share food as medicine and functional medicine with you for you to share with your family and friends. As always, check out AllieMillerRD.com to stay up to date with recipes, tips, and tricks. To continue to redefine your relationship with food.
0: Thank you for listening to the Naturally Nourished Podcast. Visit our blog at allymillerrd.com for recipes, wellness tips, and food as medicine meal plans. Connect with Allie and Becky at AllieMillerRD on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Until next time, stay nourished and be well.